Welcome to the Startup Grind podcast. Startup Grind is the world's largest startup community, inspiring, educating, and connecting millions of entrepreneurs across the globe. These are the stories of disruptors, innovators, and game changers from the fastest high growth companies and venture capital firms in existence. Join us as we unpack their strategies, learn from their mistakes, and grow together. There is no time to wait, so let's begin. This episode is brought to you by Oracle for Startups. Hey, y'all. Welcome back. This is the Startup Growing Global Podcast. I'm Chris Jonu, and I had the pleasure of interviewing Rana Elkalubi today, um, PhD. She's a pioneer in emotion AI. She's all about humanizing technology. And and I love the chat. Let, let me go through this bio because it is incredibly impressive. Um, she is the co-founder and CEO of Affectiva and the author of the newly released book, Girl Decoded, A Scientist's Quest to Reclaim Our Humanity by Bringing Emotional Intelligence to Technology. She's a passionate advocate for humanizing technology, ethics in AI and diversity. Uh, you know, we got into this, but it's so it's so nice to hear that we have good people kind of safeguarding um, some of this technology. Um, but I don't think it's as crazy as Elon says just yet. Anyway, um, robots aren't coming for us anytime soon. All right, maybe 2025. <laughs> All right, got five years, people. All right, um, she is has been recognized as Fortune 40 under 40 list. She's on the Forbes top 50 women in tech. She is a World Economic Forum young global leader and newly minted young president's organization member. She co-hosted the PBS Nova series on AI, and she holds a PhD from the University of Cambridge and a postdoctorate from MIT. Yep, super impressive. All right, and uh, we talk about artificial intelligence, her journey, and I hope you enjoy it. Cheers. Welcome, everyone. Startup Grind Global Podcast. I've got Rana here, and we are, after many technical hiccups, as is the case with most um, people that are meant to be technically proficient. Um, We are talking primarily about artificial intelligence today. But before we do that, um, can I go back a little bit and um, go through your education? Because this is is like um, certainly something that, um, as I'm reading it, the parents would be very proud of. (laughs) Yes, I I was born in Cairo, Egypt, and I grew up up around the Middle East. So my parents worked in Kuwait until the first Gulf War, after which we uh, moved to the United Arab Emirates and I was there until I finished high school. And then I um, studied computer science as an undergraduate at the American University in Cairo. And I was especially fascinated by how technology changes the way people connect and communicate with one another. So that's been like a common thread in in my interest in my research uh, over the years. Um, And I just became very interested in in that kind of human machine interface, the boundary of our connection with uh, with technology and decided to do a PhD after I finished school and moved to Cambridge University to, to do my PhD there. And then after that, I had the opportunity to join MIT as a postdoc, uh, thinking I'd become faculty, like that was the game plan. And um, a few years after I joined MIT as a postdoc, uh, we spun Affectiva out of the lab. And um, 
yeah, and, and, and on, on this mission to humanize technology and, and bring the technology to scale. Calvin Chin, E14, is that right? Oh yeah, yeah, that's right, Calvin, of course, yes. Calvin and Habib, they are, um, so E14 is a minority investor in Affectiva, um, and I'm actually one of their uh, partners and I help the fund, you know, I, I, I paid forward by helping some of the new um, startups as they spin out of the lab. Now you skipped quite a bit of stuff there in about three minutes flat. Um, <laughs> tell me a little bit more about, about you know, well, first, why, why Cambridge? Um, it sounds like you could have gone anywhere. Yeah, so, so at the time, so I, you know, I, I graduated from the American University in Cairo and I was particularly interested in exploring um, how to build an emotionally intelligent machine. Um, and I applied to a number of universities. I was a new bride back then, so I had just gotten married and um, my husband at the time had to stay back in Cairo because he ran a software company. So he wasn't gonna join me. And so the United States seemed so far Australia would have been too far. And so as a compromise, we limited the kind of the options to, to the UK and I applied to Cambridge University. They have one of the leading human machine interface research group um, based out of the computer science department there. Um, yeah, so I ended up applying and last minute actually, and, and, I, and I got a full scholarship to, to go pursue you know, my research there. Um, I was there for about five years and um, I, I would say that was kind of the springboard. Springboard? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Sounds good to me. Okay. It was the springboard <laughs> for my uh, research career. Um, I, yeah. And what do you think the, the fascination was, right? Um, because it's, you know, human interface and software. Was it just, do you think that there was like a love of, um, of, you know, I almost see kind of like Hollywood movies having some sort of um, impact in when you were young. Um, so I grew up in a household where technology was was front and center. Both my parents are technologists. In fact, they met in a programming class in the 70s. <laughs> um, so we were always exposed to the latest and greatest, you know, video gaming consoles and, you know, video cameras and, and all of that. And um, and, 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 for, and for me, what I found most fascinating about technology is that it brought us together as a family. And again, that human connection, that piece of how technology mediates human communication was really fascinating. Um, but I also found that, you know, when I first moved to Cambridge, I, I realized I was spending more time in front of my computer than I did with any other human being. And I felt that all of the richness of our nonverbal communication basically disappeared in cyberspace. So that really provided the impetus for the kind of research I've been doing over the last 20 years, which is essentially trying to use computer vision and AI and machine learning to capture all of these nonverbal expressions, like your facial expressions, your vocal intonations. Um, and that, that became my core focus. And then, so then was MIT, MIT just gave you the ability to kind of take that further? Is that how it kind of evolved? Yeah, MIT was really interesting because the Media Lab um, 
is very industry focused, right? It's one of these unique academic institutions where it's super interdisciplinary. And twice a year, we would host all of our members or sponsors. It was called Demo or Die Week. Because <laughs> you had to demo your technology. You can't just show up with PowerPoint. You had to actually have a working prototype of what you're building. And all these companies would say, oh, we're so interested in what you're doing. At the time, we were focused on autism as an application of the technology and, and Procter and Gamble wanted to use it to test their um, new products. Bank of America wanted to quantify customer experience. Toyota wanted to measure driver drowsiness. Um, so, you know, when the list got to about 20 different companies, I, I, I thought we just needed more research assistance. And the media lab director at the time, Frank Moss, said, no, 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 this is a commercialization opportunity. You ought to spin out and start a company. And, and MIT being MIT, you know, the moment we said we wanted to start a company, we just got so much support and we were connected to all sorts of, you know, serial entrepreneurs, advisors, mentors. It was, they've really gotten it down to a science. Um, yeah, and that was the beginning. And, and then, so like, I mean, so the, this is now, which kind of getting onto the, um, let me, let me see if I get this right to effectiva, mm -hmm. but in between, right? Like this, um, world economic forum, um, certainly, you know, um, um, you know, from, from the book and also, you know, member of the Massachusetts women, women's forum. Can you just talk about what, you know, um, um, these, these extra, extra passions of yours and how they kind of um, have influenced your work? Yeah, so, um, you know, so, so we coined and created the new category of emotion AI or artificial emotional intelligence. And it's a, it's a new area within AI and it's really exciting and there's a lot of applications of it across industry, but there's also a lot of ethical and moral implications of it. And I see myself as a custodian for that industry beyond even my company, right? Which means that I spend a fair amount of my cycles and my time engaging as a thought leader in how to advance the general field of AI and then specifically emotion AI. And so being a young global leader at the World Economic Forum is one way I do that. And I engage with other thought leaders in the AI space, but in business in general, where we talk about, okay, what do we need to do to make sure that this technology is applied in a thoughtful way that doesn't harm us as a society? I served on the World Economic Forum's uh, Future Global Council of Robotics and AI, and it was a, you know, uh, a very global council. We had people from, you know, everywhere in the world, and we were coming up with these best practices around AI which was really fascinating because different countries have different views on what is ethical and privacy considerations. So that, that was a really interesting group of a mix of, of, of global kind of perspectives. Can I stop you there and ask you to talk about that? Because I mean, you don't have to give the countries away, but I'm just curious as <laughs> where, where, you know, if you're, if you're coming up with these new rules and, and I have no, you know, um, frame of reference, can you just explain what you're talking about there? Yeah, one of the con big considerations in AI, and again, specifically around emotion AI, is data privacy, right? 
and consent. So everything we've done at the company so far requires explicit opt-in and consent so that people understand that they're being monitored or recorded and that this, you know, who has access to this data, is it being stored or not? All of these considerations. Now, in countries like China, for example, there's very little for consideration for data privacy. And in fact, um, yeah, and, and AI companies partner very closely with government and they have a, a ton of funding, which means that they have access to a lot of data, even companies like Affectiva, you know, don't have access to. So, so it was really fascinating to see how, yeah, different, different countries and different cultures approach this privacy question um, and how it then manifests in the products, right? Mm-hmm. And then outside of like privacy, was there any interesting kind of, you know, um, ethical kind of lines that you had to like, you know, navigate? Yeah, for us, for example, like the, the one of the um, implications of requiring that people consent means that some industries we just don't partner with. For example, a lot, we routinely get approached by different governments and organizations to use our technology in surveillance and policing mm-hmm. and profiling and lie detection. And we just say no to all of that. So we've probably turned down, you know, millions and millions of dollars of potential funding and uh, revenue because we just flat out say no. Now our competitors, for example, our Chinese competitors yep. don't do that, right? So that was, that was again, eye-opening, right? Yeah, and, and then I guess you have to have, uh, this is where you're lucky to have, you know, I guess the MIT and, and, and well, just kind of the investors that you have that are, that are on the same mission as, as you, right? To, um, yeah, I like the word custodian as, you know, as you're saying this. Um, and uh, is it is it you know is it as bad as an Elon Musk you know the the robots are coming you know like kind of scenario or you know how bad can it get? <laughs> I I am not worried given the state of the technology and where we are at with AI. Um, I I'm not worried about the existential threat that robots are going to take over. I'm much more worried about the unintended consequences of these technologies, especially as it relates to bias. So we know, for instance, that there are face recognition technologies out there that don't work well with women that look like me, right? Like, uh, because it hasn't been trained on data that includes people that look like me. So bias, data and algorithmic bias is a real issue. It's something we take very seriously at my company and we prioritize it and we evangelize it to the rest of the AI community. So that's one area where I think we should focus less on the existential threat and focus more on these, you know, imminent issues around bias. Today's e-commerce shopper wants to know how products are made and where they come from. This startup helps merchants tell them. Hi, it's Mike Stiles, and this is Meet the Startups for the week of October 7th, brought to you by Oracle for Startups. More than ever, brands are having to reassure customers their purchases are ethically and sustainably sourced. Not so easy in a globally complex supply chain. That's where German blockchain startup Retraced steps in. It offers a supply chain transparency application to help fashion brands make buyers feel great about their purchases. To scale quickly, Retraced needed to not go it alone. 
partnering with Oracle for startups got them access to the Oracle Autonomous Database and Oracle Blockchain Platform. It enabled Retrace to ensure data collected at every step of the supply chain is reliable, verified, and secure. As for the ability to quickly scale, Oracle's autonomous features scale to meet demand automatically. The technology is scaled, and so is Retrace's global customer growth and revenue. Meet the startups asked Retraced co-founder Lucas Pwender why cloud-based solutions are so necessary for fast growth. Well, um, Oracle's cloud infrastructure helps us in two ways. First of all, it helps us to scale up and down our cloud needs based on um, the demand we, we face in the market. And at the same time, it helps us a lot in the development operations. That means instead of spending a lot of money and time on creating the environment, we can just enter the cloud and start from the infrastructure that is already provided by Oracle. A powerful enterprise partner could be the difference between your startup being a long slog or a fast scale-up. Check out Oracle's startup program at oracle.com slash startup. Is that a, like a diversity problem at the programming level? Yeah, hundred percent. Yes, um, you you can't see me nod vigorously because absolutely the the way to solve this is to make sure that your data is more diverse and your algorithms consider diversity. And the only way you do this is if your team is diverse. So the more diverse voices we have around the table in terms of gender, ethnicity, age, but also even backgrounds. You don't just want machine learning scientists at your table. You want you know maybe art historians or psychologists, because, you know, you want people to be thinking about these different perspectives. Incredible. Um, and, and then, you know, um, on the, on the humanization bit, and I'm trying to think of this TV series where they could, um, you know, the human lie detector, I can't remember, but so I imagine that's the case. Um, with some accuracy, you could, you can, you can start telling, you know, what people are, I guess the question is, do you have trouble watching me or just like trying to get away from your work at like a conversation at the dinner table because you're just picking up cues that you don't want to deal with? <laughs> yeah. So, so if you want to become a certified kind of an expert face reader, you have to go through um, this program called the Facial Action Coding System. It's about a yeah. hundred hours of training. It was developed by Paul Ekman and his team, um, 30 years ago. And in fact, that's what the show Lie to Me is based on. Um, and then to code every minute of video, you watch the video in slow motion. And I would say, oh, here's Chris like smirking or raising his eyebrows. <laughs> you code for these video segments. Now we use machine learning and computer vision to automate all of that process. But I'm trained in, in, in the facial action coding system. And, and now I see people's faces like in slow motion. It's really weird. So if we're at a dinner table, I will literally like see your smile unfold over time. Or, you know, if you squint, I'll be like, hmm, squinted. What's going on there? <laughs> it's kind of, yeah. yeah. This is I, and I can't undo it. I can't undo it. <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure. Um, and then so let's, let's go through um, Effectiva. Look, it, it spins out. You've got all these, you know, these, you know, sounds like you know, impressive client list wanting to work with you. Um, it sounds like a, a dream job because this is what you wanted to do ever since you can remember. Um, can you just talk about that journey and and the impact you have? 
Yeah. That's a big question. Yeah. So uh, again, the, the, the thesis here is that AI is becoming mainstream. It is um, ingrained in our everyday lives and it's helping us be more productive and be healthier and happier. But the way AI is designed today, it's human blind, it's emotion blind. And so we're trying to marry the IQ of like all the devices we're using with emotional intelligence and marry this IQ and EQ. Um, this has a lot of applications, everything from understanding, you know, helping brands understand how their customers engage with their content to making our roads safer uh, by building cars that can detect drowsiness and distraction and can customize the experience depending on your mood and emotion within, in the vehicle, all the way to mental health. And, you know, you could imagine this technology integrated into Siri or Alexa, and it could provide real-time coaching on your mental state if you're stressed or anxious or even clinically depressed. So there's just applications across the board, which makes this really... I mean, incredibly fascinating and it's a huge market opportunity, but it's also, I'm sure you've had multiple guests on your shows, you know, the number one advice to startups is to focus, 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 right? So we always have this tension between which markets to explore and should we just hunker down and focus on just one use case? Is, is that, is that um, driven by mentorship? Because I know, you know, like as entrepreneurs, we've, and I guess, like you said, there's so many applications. You probably get excited about like, you know, a bunch of meetings. How, how do you um, pick and choose? I like to think about it. Um, we, we actually have, a, so Harvard Business School did a case study on us exploring that same question, right? Should we be a horizontal platform and that, that can be applied across industry or should we focus on a few, you know, a few or a couple of industries um, where we've landed and we've, you know, we've explored different strategies where we are currently uh, focused is on a number of key markets like media analytics, automotive, and some adjacent spaces. But we always have our antennas up for big, you know, high potential, high growth uh, market opportunities. You know, for example, because of COVID, there is so much interest in our technology for video conferencing platforms because yeah. we can bring in these key insights that, that don't exist right now to provide presenters with feedback. So that's an area we're exploring. Yeah, so I, I would say mostly focused on a few industries, but exploring other potential markets as well. Can you, can you dig a bit deeper on the, um, you know, the Zoom, improving my Zoom? Can you give me some insight into how you're kind of thinking about improving this experience? Because it seems like it's, one that's here to stay. I like to draw from my own personal experience and I'm, I'm sure that will resonate with you as well. So when my, when my book um, came out in April, which was, you know, we were kind of right in the midst of all of this, I had to pivot to doing virtual book tours and virtual events. And um, I would often end up in a Zoom call with like, or, you know, a, a live stream on LinkedIn or Facebook or whatever, with maybe thousands of people watching me, but I can't see any of them. Unlike yeah. in a real, right? Unlike in a real event where you can riff off of the energy of the audience and you can customize your message, you can say a joke and, and actually see people laugh 
that builds human connection, right? It builds rapport, it builds trust. You can't do any of that online. And I keep imagining like if our technology was integrated, it could show you moment by moment how people are responding to you. Um, so if you say something funny, you see it spike up because everybody's laughing or not. And then, you know, oh God, like it didn't really work, this joke, right? So I, I think this kind of feedback to create a sense of a shared experience is really key and we're gonna see a lot of innovation on these video conferencing, yeah. Can you talk about um, some of the, the, the exciting projects you've had? And actually, also, uh, before that, you mentioned, um, you know, there was clear projects you were gonna, that you were just not prepared to take money, right? Um, is there, is there, without saying, sounding too cliche, this kind of purpose-driven or like values that you have defined that makes it quite clear cut for you internally yes. as, as a company? Yes. So when we first spun out, it was just me and my co-founder, Professor Rosalind Picard at MIT. And we sat around her kitchen table and we said, okay, there are so many applications of this technology. Where are we going to draw the line? And we literally came up with like three or four guidelines, privacy, the integrity of the science and the algorithms, um, this, this thing called power asymmetry, right? Like, how do we make sure that if I'm going to share data that's super personal to me, that I'm getting something in return for it? It could be monetary. It could be, a, 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 you know, safer cars, like whatever it is. But we have to balance this world where, you know, a few companies own most of our data and they're getting the majority of the value out of it. Like, that has to stop. So we defined these core values or, you know, that have acted as our North Star and they drive business strategy. They're not just marketing fluff on our website. They actually, we actually use those values. We sit in meetings where we debate whether we should take on this new client or not based on these set of core values. So um, yeah, it's been, and, and we've been tested on it. Like in 2011, we almost ran out of money. We were raising uh, a, a new round of funding and it wasn't coming together. And we got this called call from um, an intelligence agency and they were like we're going to give you like 40 million dollars of funding on condition that you pivot to surveillance and we turned it away it was a lot of money because we we didn't even know if we were going to raise money outside of that and and we we turned it away and we doubled down we we're able to raise um at the time it was a lot less like nine million dollars of funding but it was enough for us to continue growing and the, the investors are still on our board, still very aligned with our mission. And then on the, on the, you know, the data privacy thing, do, is it, does it, will it get to a point where we are negotiating with companies on what our, the value of our data is worth? Or is that a crazy kind of concept? No, I think we're going to start seeing different business models around our data. Um, I mean, we still have a ways to go to map it all out, but I, I, I do think we need different business models. Um, if you're going to share data that's so personal to you, maybe you do get, maybe you do monetize this data, right? Yeah. And you certainly have to be in control of it. Yeah. I want to make sure I'm ending um, on, a, on a high note. And I want to do that with um, talking about, can you talk about some of the projects you're, you're um, you know, you're super proud of or whether they're past, present or, you know, um, in, the, in the future and, um, and particularly those, yeah, the impact, whether you've had an Im the impact you're, you're, you're proud of. 
Yeah, I think one of the things that I'm really proud of is, is our commitment to training the next generation of AI leaders. So every year we have a training, a summer internship program. Um, this year we almost canceled it. And then last minute we pivoted to doing a virtual training, summer training program. We had 50 kids from around the world. Um, some were undergraduates, some were postgraduates, and some were high school students who That's were cool. interested in AI. Yeah. And it was a five-week program. It ended with a two-and-a-half-week make-a-thon where the students were challenged kind of in terms of imagining what a future with emotion AI would look like and building that out. And we had like really interesting applications. Like this team built a smart mirror that can help manage your stress and anxiety. Another I know it's so cool. Another team <laughs> built like a, a chat bot that can help monitor your meetings and make sure that everybody's getting, you know, an opportunity to contribute and the, you know, they were monitoring all the nonverbal. So it's just so creative. Um, and I, I'm just so proud that we are able to, you know, instill all of these ethical considerations in the brains of, of young people so that when, you know, cause they're going to be the ones who are a, using the technologies we're, we're designing right now, but also they're going to be the future leaders in AI. Absolutely. And, and I did, I just, I realized as I'm, I'm you know, um, looking at your bookshelf there, I completely forgot to mention the book. Can you just talk about how the book came about and, um, and just the, the premise of it? Yes, yeah, so the book is called Girl Decoded, A Scientist's Quest to Reclaim Our Humanity by Bringing Emotional Intelligence to Technology. And it's a memoir. So even though I'm 42, uh, saying a mem memoir makes it sound like I'm 80, uh, but I'm not. <laughs> um, but it's, it follows my personal journey growing up in the Middle East and making my way to the United States. Um, and becoming a female entrepreneur in a very male-dominated tech industry. Um, and juxtaposed with that personal journey is the journey of building the technology. So I take the reader behind the scenes, you know, what does it take, what does it mean to build AI, right? And what are all of these ethical and moral implications and how do I navigate them as a founder and an entrepreneur? Um, I wrote the book because I wanted to inspire people a to forge their own journeys and their paths and not have this inner voice of doubt which i have a lot of um and hopefully also get a, a public conversation and dialogue around what does it mean to to build ethical ai and then so what's what's next for effectiva um we still have a lot of work to do this is this technology space is very nascent um i think our next biggest milestone is to bring our technology inside the cars we're in a lot of um, really cool conversations with car companies now, and hopefully this technology will be in your car in a couple of years. Fingers and crossed. Thank you very much for your time, Rana. I, I would, um, I'd love to, to, to do this again sometime, and um, I'm, gonna, I'm definitely gonna read the book. And, um, and yeah, look, thank you very much. Thank you for, for doing what you're doing, and um, thanks for joining me today. Thank you for having me. Thank you for tuning in. To keep up to date with all things Startup Grind, visit us at startupgrind.com or join us at any event in a city near you. Until next time, chase the vision and keep hustling.